This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Alex Vitale, the author of The End of Policing. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. You bet, Lee. Could you give my listeners just a quick overview of who you are and how you came to write this book? Ordinarily, we're talking to people whose book just came out, but this was a 2017 book. So if you could let us know how you came to write it back then and how you got interested in this issue. Yeah, the book is certainly getting a second life here in the last few weeks. So I'm a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College, where I also coordinate the Policing and Social Justice Project. And I've been working on policing issues for about 30 years. I started at the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness in 1990, working on housing issues, but uh, got pulled into what was uh, essentially civil rights work with the uptick in police harassment of homeless people that happened at that time. And, you know, basically transform myself from a, a housing and ur- urban development person into a more of a a criminologist and policing studies person. And I got the idea for writing this book about eight years ago or so, seven years ago. And I actually had the uh, the deal with the publisher before Ferguson happened. You know, I, and I thought I was writing something of a kind of curiosity for people in the prison abolition movement and, and critical prison studies to sort of think more deeply about the role of policing in mass incarceration kind of, you know, taking Michelle Alexander's ideas about prisons and and transferring that to policing as well. Now, for a lot of people, these past few weeks have been very eye-opening as we're being introduced to the concept of prison abolition, police abolition, defunding the police. But obviously, when you look closer, just because the general public wasn't hearing about it, did not mean there wasn't real work going on. You know, Angela Davis in the 1970s was talking about prison abolition. But when someone just hears defund the police or abolish the police, I think that it's hard for them to get a grip on what does that mean? So when you think about police abolition, what would that mean for you? So what that means to me is is two things. It's about a process and it's about an analysis. And the analysis is that the criminal justice system comes with a tremendous amount of baggage, that it's about the use of violence and coercion to manage problems within a legal framework that does not benefit everyone equally, and that as a result, it should be relied upon as the tool of absolute last resort. And the process is about looking at those things that have been turned over to policing and incarceration and trying to develop concrete alternatives for managing those problems in less punitive and violent ways. And as we chip away at that system, you know, we see what's left and we try to see if we can come up with better, less punitive approaches. I think one of the more heartbreaking instances that people think of when they think of police involvement that goes very wrong and that could be replaced by something else is 
a wellness check and you have a whole chapter in your book devoted to quote unquote wellness checks, which is essentially when someone's undergoing a mental health crisis and the only number the family really has is 911 or the police. So could you talk a little bit about the police abolition framework when you look at issues of wellness checks or mental health responses? What could we be doing? Yeah, this is kind of like the the low-hanging fruit for this issue. Between a quarter and a half of all people killed by police in the United States are having a mental health crisis. Police are the wrong tool for this problem. They don't even want to be in this business. But what's happened is, is that with the deinstitutionalization of mental hospitals in the 70s and 80s, there was no provision of community-based care to allow people to truly live independently. People got a bottle of pills and were sent on their way. And this has created a major crisis that then has been turned over to the police to manage. So we now have really well-developed proposals in places like Los Angeles and New York that lay out what the kind of community-based mental health systems we would need to put in place so that we didn't have so many crisis calls, and then what a 24-hour crisis call capacity would look like that doesn't rely on armed police. Speaking of armed police, they certainly have many more arms today in 2020 than police had earlier in the century. We have in our past uh, series and episodes talked to people like Bradley Balco about the militarization of police, and you identify this as a problem in your book as well. Could you please talk about the ramping up of weapons availability to police and the use of weapons by police? Well, certainly, you know, Radley's book, The Rise of the Warrior Cop, is a great place to start this conversation, and I certainly recommend that book to people. So my analysis of the situation is that, you know, what we've seen over the last 40, 50 years is political leaders turning a growing number of social problems over to the police to manage. And as those problems are getting worse and not responding to policing, there's been an intensification of policing so that we're, we're using SWAT teams to do, you know, low-level drug raids and no-knock warrants looking for marijuana in the middle of the night and, you know, intimidating protesters and, and things like this. So this has been a bipartisan problem. Both parties are implicated in this turning over of military hardware to the police, but also in in creating this kind of warrior mindset in policing that's, that's driven by the fact that politicians have told police they're waging a war on drugs and a war on crime and a war on gangs and a war on disorder and a war on immigrants and a war on terror. And and it's this war footing that then gets reflected in the training, in the hardware, in the esprit de corps of the police. And it, it views whole segments of the population as an enemy to be neutralized. So you brought up training, and that to me is a really key thing to consider in your book. Certainly, as I've been viewing the discussions that have gone on since the killing of George Floyd and, of course, the many deaths before that, a suggestion that's often brought up, either in response to the call to defund or abolish police or just as a cure-all, is, well, we need to provide police more training. But what you've identified is that 
the training that ended up being implemented by past attempts at police reform ended up exacerbating the problem. So could you talk a little bit about that and why it's not going to be a solution? Right. So the the thinking behind the reforms of the 1960s coming out of the Kerner Commission and the reforms coming out of Obama's task force on 21st century policing were both organized around this idea of procedural justice and the goal of professionalizing police as a strategy for restoring public confidence in the police. So it's about making the police more professional, less biased, more transparent, and trying to reduce some of the excessive violence in policing. The problem here is that this does nothing to address the substantive injustices in policing, and it pretends that we can turn violence workers into social workers. Because what distinguishes police from all other bureaucracies is that they are authorized and trained and encouraged to use violence. That's, that's the basis of their authority. That, that's what makes them special. And so when we tell them that they're at war with the public, that they've got a clear corner, but then when they use violence, we say, oh, no, but don't actually hurt anyone. Here's some de-escalation training. That just doesn't work. So for instance, all four of the officers in Minneapolis who were present for the killing of George Floyd had had de-escalation training, had had mindfulness training, had had implicit bias training, had been told they had a legal affirmative obligation to intervene, to protect life, to prevent police abuse of power, and that sanctity of life was like the overwhelming priority in dealing with the public and none of that mattered it just went all it just all went right out the window when when their authority meets resistance they will escalate and so the solution to that is not to give them yet another seminar on de-escalation training it's to try to remove those violence workers from as many scenarios as possible Another thing that gets brought up as a potential solution short of police abolition is encouraging diversity in police ranks. And I found what you had to say on that very interesting. Could you talk to our listeners about that? Right. So this is another attempt at like professionalization, sensitivity, community engagement, and it just doesn't make any meaningful difference. You know, when I wrote the book, we had an ocean of research that, that couldn't find any positive effects for police diversity. Now, in the last year or two, there have been one or two studies that show some, some minor improvements in a few areas, but th- this is really insignificant and misses the big picture here, right? Whether or not it's a white officer or a black officer enforcing the war on drugs, does nothing to change the substantive injustice of it. You know, a totally lawful, procedurally proper, unbiased drug arrest is still going to ruin some young person's life for no good reason. It's not making anyone safer. It's not saving any lives. It's just this burden that's been put on already vulnerable communities. And the race of the officer just doesn't matter. And if you look at like uh, James Foreman Jr.'s book, Locking Up Our Own, about Washington, D.C., he says, look, black police officers often 
have more personal visceral anger at people who they feel are dragging down the black race through their criminal and disorderly behavior than white officers do. So some of the research shows that black officers are more likely to make an arrest of a black person than their white counterparts. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor, but when we return, I'd like to speak to Alex Vitale about how we arrived here at our current era of policing. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? In her head note, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system, their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and I'm still speaking with Alex Vitale, author of The End of Policing. So Alex, when we're asked to imagine a world without police or a world with extremely scaled back police, it's often very difficult for us to imagine what that would be like. But policing and police have not actually been a profession or an institution in the United States or other places for all that long when you look at human history. Could you talk a little bit about the history of policing and how police agencies arose? So in the United States, you know, policing has only been around for the most part for about 150 years, though there are some precursor forms of policing that have been around longer. And and it's those precursors in a way that tells us a lot about the kind of functional history of policing, why police forces get created. So I argue that the, you know, the first force that meets the definition of a modern police force is the Charleston City Watch and Guard that's created in the very late 1700s, but its primary law enforcement duty was enforcing slavery on what was in the big cities of the South, a mobile slave population that actually worked outside of the home of their owners. And there was a lot of movement back and forth between homes and workplaces. And they needed a force that could prevent the formation of underground societies, reading groups, and slave revolts. And that was the the primary law enforcement mission of the Charleston City Watch and Guard. In the North, policing emerges to manage immigrant populations and help mold them into a stable and somewhat docile, you know, industrial working class. Out West, policing emerges as a form of colonialism. The Texas Rangers are created to drive out the indigenous population and Mexican and Spanish landholders to make way for white settlement. So the History of policing is not a pretty one, and it's really been a tool for enforcing deep inequalities in our society. And I'd like to talk about that inequality, too, because I noticed as I was speaking to you, I've been using the language of, oh, we, or expressing that this is new information to a lot of people. But communities of color have been pointing this out and attempting to rectify the injustices that they experience at the hands of police for a very long time. It's primarily, it seems to be a white audience, middle class, upper middle class even, who is very new to this. 
why do you think in this moment we are seeing the white community more interested in engaging and paying attention? What has been the breaking point that has brought the ideas that communities of color have been talking about with police abolition to the front to more white audiences? So I think this is something that has been percolating kind of under the radar and is is tied to broader political shifts going on in the country. So ever since Ferguson and Eric Garner, you know, there have been movements mostly in communities of color who are framing these issues of racial and economic justice as trying to develop alternatives to the criminal justice system. And a growing number of whites have sort of encountered these movements and made efforts to support them. And this has been driven in part, I think, by a kind of broader political crisis that is reflected in the rise of Bernie Sanders and democratic socialism, where people see the limitations of the kind of mainstream Democratic Party politics to deal with problems of racial and economic justice. And so people have been turning to these grassroots movements for guidance. And these movements increasingly have this kind of abolitionist analysis and are demanding this redistributive kind of economic program that fits well with the kind of socialist worldview that many young people today identify with. So I think that it may be harder for people who don't come into contact with police on a daily basis to understand these real structural issues and injustices. When you look at neighborhoods who have been subjected to this idea of broken windows policing, what do they experience when it comes to being the focus of police attention? So, I mean, you're absolutely right. For folks in, you know, wealthier, leafy suburbs, Policing is largely an abstraction. It's something they see on television. It's something that they imagine that they can, you know, call into service on, on a, through a phone call to produce safety for them. This understanding is largely fictional and imaginative, but also it ignores the impact of policing on those colors, that, on those communities that are intensely over-policed. The way a lot of these communities experience this is both harassment and low-level criminalization and a lack of actual real safety. So that even though there seem to be police everywhere, they don't actually feel safer. And sometimes this gets defined as a problem of under-policing and over-policing. But I think what it really is, is just that policing is not actually that effective at producing public safety. It's much more effective as a tool of kind of vengeance and social control. So we need to both convince over-police communities and folks who don't have to deal that much with police that there are alternative, less punitive ways of producing public safety. There was a paragraph in the conclusion to your book that really struck me, and if you don't mind, I'll, I'll read it. We cannot demand the police get rid of those annoying homeless people in the park or the threatening young people on the corner and simultaneously call for affordable housing and youth jobs because the state is only offering the former and will deny us the latter every time. 
Yes, communities deserve protection from crime and even disorder, but we must always demand those without reliance on the coercion, violence, and humiliation that undergird our criminal justice system. The state may try to solve those problems through police power, but we should not encourage or reward such short-sighted, counterproductive, and unjust approaches. We should demand safety and security, but not at the hands of the police. In the end, they rarely provide either. And that really struck me. So I would like to ask you, if you were addressing someone, probably white, upper middle class, who hears these calls to defund the police or to abolish the police and feels fear and says, oh, well, but then what would happen if my house was being burglarized? What would happen if I was facing violence of some sort? What would be your response to them? Well, uh, there's a few things to say. First, there's no situation where tomorrow there's some magic switch and then there are no police. There's, there's no city council in this country that's going to zero out the police budget next year. What we're talking about is a process of identifying specific interventions that people in communities believe will make them safer than the system we have now. It's important to point out that police are very ineffective in this regard. Whenever they're called about a burglary, the burglary has already happened. And they come and take a report that is usually not even investigated, much less solved. That the reasons people commit burglaries have to do with the war on drugs and entrenched racialized poverty. And what people in this movement are demanding is that we actually begin to address those problems so that we don't have motivated offenders in the first place. And as we develop those things, then we can dial back our reliance on policing. And we see where that process leads. So for now, there are police to call. There's no world where that is going to go away in the next year or two or five, right? But that system doesn't work well, and we need space to start putting in preventative measures and alternative response capacities because policing comes with costs, dollars and cents costs, but also public safety and public health costs. So many of my listeners are attorneys, and I'm sure at least some of them are prosecutors who work closely with police, and others are criminal defense attorneys who you know, really experience different side of the police. When it comes to how the legal system will have to rearrange the way it does business, what do you see as some key things to think about or directions where reform would need to take place once you reach the judicial system? Well, I think we can look at some of the stuff being proposed by Rachel Rollins in Boston and you know, the Tiffany Caban campaign in Queens, New York, and the stuff going on with Krasner in Philadelphia, right? They're trying to shrink their footprint. And in the best case scenarios, they're trying to actually divert resources from the criminal justice system to community-based interventions that focus on prevention instead of punishment after the fact. And you know, there are a lot of ADAs out there who joined up thinking that this was a way to produce safety for their communities. 
And the reality is it's just not very effective at doing that. And it produces a huge set of negative collateral consequences. And so what we need to do, this, and what this movement is calling for, is creating other avenues for those young people to help their communities other than putting people in cages. You know, where are the jobs in community centers working with young people? Where are the jobs for school counselors and school social workers? Where are the jobs for, for mentors attached to, you know, public housing projects to work with young people to break the cycle of violence? So this is about giving everybody some new pathways for, for approaching these community safety problems. Well, Alex, last two questions for you. Number one, where can people buy your book, The End of Policing? And number two, what are some other resources that you suggest they seek out to read more about this if they're interested in the topic of police abolition? So, yeah, the book is available everywhere. The easiest thing to do is to go to versobooks.com and order it directly. I'm not sure there are any printed books available at the moment because we, we're sold out and, and they're, they're on back order, but ebooks and audiobooks are available. And there are a lot of resources out there about these issues. I have a YouTube channel, just Google my name, Alex Vitale, and I have interviews with all kinds of authors who are doing work in this space that give you a little intro to some of the more interesting work in this field. Well, thank you to Alex Vitale for joining us to speak about his book, The End of Policing, and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.